0: Hey everybody, I have an announcement. My new book, Traumatized, is available for pre-order now. In it, I cover PTSD and complex PTSD, the symptoms we can experience when we have been traumatized, and of course, ways we can overcome these and heal. There is honestly too much helpful information in this book to list it all, but if you've ever wondered if you've been traumatized or are working to overcome past trauma, this book is for you. I cannot wait for it to be out in the world and help anyone suffering. So please pre-order yours today at katymorton.com. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. And today it is so hot in Los Angeles, it's like 86 degrees in our house and I'm dying. So if you notice, I start to just like drip sweat, like I'm not stressed, it's just sweat. Um, And I also put ice, look, I put ice in my cup like a ton and it's already melted. It's like, it's like I'm in a sauna. You hear that? Okay. So I'm gonna try to keep drinking my water, keep answering your questions. I tried to wait a little bit later in the day. It's like a little after four. Usually we record this a little bit earlier in the day, but it's, it's a little cooler, but sweet mother Mary, you guys, I looked at the weather and it wasn't going to cool down to below 80 until like seven o'clock. And <laughs> I was like, I can't wait that long. You guys wouldn't like me that like late day, Katie, my brain, especially cause I'm writing this week. Um, and Today, I've been writing all about ACEs. If you don't know about ACEs, when it comes to trauma, their adverse childhood experiences, I think they could just be called traumas. Um, however, I've been like uh, listening to Nadine. Um, if you don't know Dr. Nadine Burke-Williams or Burke-Harris, sorry, I don't know why I said Williams. Nadine Burke-Harris, uh, she is a Surgeon General. In California, the first ever, and she is wonderful. And I I just, her stuff is so helpful. So I've been reading her stuff. I've been watching her TED talk. I've been uh, learning about the brain and what happens in the brain when we have a bunch of ACEs because we have that big study, the ACEs study uh, by the CDC and Kaiser Permanente. Um, Anyway, long story short, I've been writing and reading all day today. And now I'm here to switch gears and to answer some of your questions. And if you're wondering where I get my questions, um, I ask them today I was way late. I'm so sorry. If you were waiting, I apologize. Usually I give you guys a full day to ask your questions. However, yesterday I was writing and I forgot. Um, so, I asked them on the community tab of the podcast YouTube channel, which is opinions that don't matter. That's the name of Sean and I's podcast. Um, And so anyway, it's on there and this is, that's where these videos are posted. Um, And I ask it in the community tab. So make sure your notifications are turned on for that. But usually, like I said, I usually give you like 24 hours and today I gave you like three hours. So I apologize. Um, Anyways, without further ado, let's get into your questions. Okay. And more water. Cause I'm already sweating and my arms are sticking to the table. This is attractive. This is wonderful. Ah, okay, let's go. Question number one. Hi, Katie. I have trouble focusing or concentrating almost all of the time. I worry a lot about the past and how it's affecting my future. This leads me to trying to distract myself and block everything out, which makes my brain feel kind of foggy and feeling stuck. I'm already in therapy, but I'm having trouble managing in the meantime. Do you have any advice? Truthfully, uh, focusing and concentrating can be part of depression. I know I've talked about that a little bit in the past. Um, I think. God, probably years ago at this point, I'd lose track of time. I'm like, I don't know, a while ago I put out a video and then I'll look, it's like four years ago. I'm like, holy shit balls. But I have a video called the most overlooked sign of depression, I think, or something to that effect. Um, I would check that video out. Ooh, itch, sorry. And so, because I talk about how focusing and concentrating can be a symptom of depression and it's one that we often overlook and we think it's like, oh, I just maybe didn't sleep well enough or oh, maybe I didn't do this or that. Um, And Okay. So I just wanted to address that, that it may be depression. And I think even if we're in therapy, if we find the symptoms of whatever we're struggling with, maybe this is depression, maybe it's anxiety, maybe it's just like brain fog, and we're not really sure where it comes from yet. But whatever the reason, it's there, and it's debilitating. It sounds like you're feeling stuck. Um, you feel like it's you're worrying a lot about the past and how it's affecting your future. And that could be like anxiety-driven. My, if you were my patient and I'd been seeing you every week and I felt like this wasn't getting better and it was still really debilitating for you and really upsetting, I would refer you to see a psychiatrist. I'd want them to uh, consider medication. I know not everybody's open to that, but I'm just putting it out there as an option because I think potentially for this person um, and anyone else struggling with stuff like this, that it could really be beneficial. It could be something that you at least get all the information. Doesn't mean you have to say, yes, I want to be on medication or anything like that. You can ask questions, you can be informed, um, you can see what your options are. Because I'm very I'm very curious if that would help with this for a while. Until, like I've talked about this before, if we're drowning in the symptoms, I think of medication as like a life raft. It gets our head above water and it gives us the energy and the oomph to do the work that we need to in therapy so that we can feel better. Does that make sense? And so that might be what we need, especially when it's focusing and concentrating. Because I can give you some tools, which I'm gonna do. Don't fret. But I do think that um sometimes when it's stuff like this medication is just the is the best way to kind of get our head above water, water so that we can then do the things that we need to do and stop us from feeling like foggy and stuck and worry thoughts and all that swirling. Um and so check into that, okay? But then as far as tools and tips and techniques and things that like behaviorally I would encourage you to do, I think focusing and concentrating try to schedule your day and break it up into smaller chunks. So normally we know through research that our brain can only focus like the average human brain can focus on one task for 30 to 45 minutes at a time. Okay, cool. So you can break your day up into 30 minute increments of focus, followed by 15 minutes of break time. Okay. Maybe that's not good enough. Maybe you're still like, shit, I still can't concentrate. What am I going to do? Well, then maybe we try like for 20 minutes or 15 minutes. There is no judgment when it comes to trying to work with, not against our brain. I've heard from a lot of people who have ADHD, even the wonderful channel by Jessica McCabe, how to ADHD. She talks about like working with your ADHD brain instead of fighting against it, not comparing yourself to someone else and how they operate, but only comparing yourself to how you did yesterday or a minute ago. Um, and so those are, those are some things that we can do. We can break up our day and schedule it and structure it so that we have these little chunks of time where we have to focus, and then we get like break time where we don't have to focus. So consider that, okay? And then talking to your therapist about it, telling them how you feel su- how you feel stuck, and you're struggling to concentrate. Because my next tip is kind of about like the worry thoughts and stopping those. You can use some thought stopping techniques. Whether that's like stop, 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 stop. We say it in our head. We say it loud. okay? And then we pull our brain into a very emotional driven memory, a positive one. That's why we say like your favorite trip you ever took or one of the nicest days you had um, or a time in your life when things were simpler and easier. Think about those times. Um, Use all your five senses. Tell it to me in as much detail as possible. So, that's another technique. Also, if it's all these worry thoughts, I would encourage you to, you know, start and end each day with some things that you're grateful for and some things that went well. In a way, we're kind of like disproving that worry because I know no matter what we can do, if we have generalized anxiety disorder or any anxiety disorder, the worry can just go and go and go and go and go and go and go. And And we don't, know how to fight it. And even if we try to come up with other evidence, it's like it has a worry thought to go along with that. It can feel like it's spiraling out of control. And so just being a little bit more positive, being grateful for your day, things that went well, we're kind of like sneakily finding evidence to not support the worry thoughts. Um, Yeah. And keeping track of those and arguing back can help too. There's a lot of different things that we can do, but I, I really want you to consider seeing a psychiatrist and getting assessed for medication and then seeing if the other things help too. I mean, all of this combined, like with our powers combined, um, hopefully it will make you feel better. Um, but yeah, I think I think letting your therapist know is really, really important. I don't want to like let that one slip through the cracks. I know I said that really briefly, but you said I'm already in therapy, but I'm having trouble managing in the meantime. We have to let them know. This could be like check-ins throughout the week. I've done that with many patients over the years who don't quite, maybe they can't afford another session and I don't have time in my schedule, or they don't need that whole other session. It's really just a check-in. Um, we can do text check-ins. I've done that for a lot of my patients where it's like every other day, I'm just like, hey, how's it going? How's your work going on? insert thing. They're working on either homework for therapy, uh, work stuff, homework for school, whatever it may be. Um, yeah, I can check in. So see if your therapist will do some of those things, or maybe you can send emails. You know, there's a lot of different ways we can manage things right now. Um, but no, you're not alone. Like I said, it's one of the most commonly overlooked symptoms of depression. And we all know depression, anxiety, they're just like these really mean friends that hang out together and like teeter totter back and forth. And sometimes happen at the same time. We're like, Oh my God, I want to tear my skin off. Um, but hang in there. It does get better. Try some of those tools and techniques and potentially consider medication. Talk to a doctor. See if it's something that's right for you. Cool? Cool. Okay. Let's move on to question number two. And if any of you all, as always, I want to kind of engage with you all the same way I do on my basic, you know, Katie Morton channel on the like original channel, um, is if you have some tips and tools and things that have worked for you, things that you think maybe I left out, something you want to add, um, something I got wrong, like I, to that end. Um, but it, well, let me finish my thought. Sorry, I do this a lot. My brain's like a monkey brain's all over the place. Um, so leave those in the comments. I think that we can learn from one another. It's a great way to be, have the community be a resource as well as the podcast. So um, if you're watching this on YouTube and you have something you want to add, or you're listening on the podcast, hop over to the YouTube channel, leave a comment, leave something helpful. Um, but what I was going to say is last week, I talked about schema therapy and how I don't really know much about it. And I felt like I really fudged up that question and answer, and I'm sorry. Um, so to the person who asked that, I apologize. To that end, I have purchased a book about it um, based on a recommendation from one of our community members helping explain it better. I haven't gotten into it yet, but it's definitely on my list. Um, so if you have follow-up questions, maybe give me a month or two. So maybe in like August to September, feel free to ask your questions about schema therapy. Hopefully I will have a, like a better understanding of it, how it works, all that stuff. Um, so yeah, just FYI. Okay. Sorry. I got some ice in there. Um, Question number two. Hey, Katie, I've been going through what feels like an existential crisis since my grandmother passed away last year, and I struggle with depersonalization, derealization, anxiety, OCD, and depression. Ever since she passed, I felt so out of it and disconnected from myself and the world, and I find myself thinking, what's the point of being alive if we're all just going to die? My worries are often geared towards dying and very much catastrophic thinking. I'm not suicidal. I really just don't feel like a person or yeah I I really just want to feel like a person again and be happy with being human and find the beauty in it without feeling so temporary. What can I do to start getting to a better mindset about life and get over this existential dread? When I read this question I was like, yes, this happens so uh, like it's so common when we've lost someone close to us and maybe it's because I'm writing a book about trauma. I don't know. It's possible. However, This sounds like trauma. It sounds like we were traumatized by the death of our grandmother. That's what I feel through this. When you're talking about how, you know, since your grandmother passed away, you've struggled with depersonalization, derealization, which we know dissociation is kind of part of that PTSD response, anxiety, OCD, depression. I think all of that can kind of be explained by, uh, we could call it um, adjustment disorder or we could call it PTSD. I'd probably call it PTSD. Because the worry thoughts and the geared towards dying and the just feeling like you're not connected, you're not around. What's the what's uh, the use of being here? What's it all worth? You know, all of that stuff. I think it's a trauma response, and so my advice would really be to find a therapist and talk about it, process the grief. Um, there are online services like BetterHelp, Talkspace. Um, there are free peer support uh, things like Seven Cups. I know you can actually even pay for. Um, For more care, and I know I've heard mixed reviews about all of these. Some of you hate Talkspace, some of you hate Seven Cups, some of you hate BetterHelp. But I promise you, there is a good fit for you in one of those. You know, there's there are a lot of resources and options we have out there. And then if you just want some, you know, uh, crisis counseling, there's a crisis text line you can text with someone. But I really think it's important for you to spend time, even just journaling about the loss of your grandma, how you feel, what happened, all of that stuff. I would really like you to to allow yourself to feel it, allow yourself to talk about it, think about it, process it. Remember, if we're derail, like if we are struggling with dissociation of any form, we aren't going to be able to process it. So if you feel yourself like pulling away, that day is probably not a good day to try to, you know, process it through, feel it out, deal with it. Um, But the next day could be the good day. Um, And so I think that that's really the best thing for this. That's my best advice because, sorry, when I talk a lot, it makes me like kind of yawn, but not yawn. I'm just like trying to breathe in my body's like, breathe. Um, but all of the symptoms I really feel could be explained by PTSD. And if you are curious about PTSD and you're like, "Mm, I'm not sure watch my old video, just search on YouTube, Katie Morton, PTSD, you'll find it. I go through all of the symptoms. Um, I have other videos about complex PTSD. If you're curious about that, all sorts of stuff. Not to mention, I'll have my whole book coming out about trauma um, and the shared trauma through social media and stuff like that. But um, when it comes to this, I, I really think that it—that's the response and that's what's happening. And so, um, where what can I do to start go getting into a better mindset about life and get over this existential dread? I would encourage you to start journaling. I know, I know. If Susie's listening, she's like, "Oh, the dreaded J word." But start journaling. Start writing about it. Start talking to people about it. How much you miss your grandma, the best memories you have, things that you're sad about, things you're worried about. Get it out of your head so it's not just sitting in there, r- make, you know, ruminating and spinning. We want to process it by expressing it. Um, and maybe you're not much of a writer. Maybe you're not much of a talker. Maybe it's through art, music, uh, movies, whatever you can do for you. Find a way to kind of get it out. I do think that speaking either like talking it out or writing out are best. Um, but you know, everybody's different. So I don't want you to feel like you have to do that. Um, But I think that that would be beneficial. And then if you can find a therapist and you can afford that, I would try to do that or try to find some online support. I know that there's also, I was just on a podcast uh, called Grief is My Superpower. And I haven't listened to, I've only listened to a couple episodes, if I'm honest. I listened to two before being on just to get an idea for the host. Um, But it could be very validating and helpful. Um, People share their own experiences of grief and, and what it meant for them and things like that. So that could be helpful too. Maybe you know, check out a podcast or two. Um, yeah, yeah, I think processing it will really help you stop feeling such existential dread. As you say, I think it will help, uh, bring you back into your body, help you better manage those OCD, anxiety, depression symptoms. Um, yeah. And if you're curious about grounding techniques, I have that whole video about them. I think it's with Alexa, but I might've done two, one with her and one on my own. Um, but just search Katie Morton grounding techniques so that you can find ways to, if you find, if you are able to track back where you start feeling dissociated, and then we can use those tools to bring you back down. Um, so check that out because I think that could be really helpful too. Um, and if you're wondering, grounding techniques are things like counting colors, like how many colors of green are in the room? Um, how many uh, soft objects are there? Are there blue things? How many red things? It sounds silly. Some people snap rubber bands, fidget toys. Uh, going through your five senses, what do you smell? What do you taste? What What? do you? What, how's your clothing feel on your skin for touch? There's all sorts of things. Um, but yeah, I hope that those help. Keep you, keep you here, feeling connected, knowing that it will get better. Okay. Only barely sweating. I'm pretty impressed. Probably because my water is like freezing cold. Okay. Question number three. Complaining can feel validating, especially when the listener is empathetic and agrees with your troubles. Totally understand and agree. Although some degree of complaining is good, what are some ways you know that you're complaining too much? Any tips to stop complaining, but instead seeing the positive and working towards a better attitude? I love this question. And yes, complaining is validating, especially when the person, you know, shows empathy towards us, listens, um, you know, agrees with your troubles like, yeah, that would suck. What a jerk. You know, we we love that, right? We It helps us feel heard, understood, and it's just good. It just is. So, yes, complaining is good. And I think at the beginning of any situation or struggle, it's okay to complain for a while. There's like a period of time where I think just complaining is perfectly normal and fine. But I feel like that's a pretty short lived time frame. Like let's say we're having a, we have a shitty boss at work. I think I'll give us like a month or two to complain about it. And then here's what I think we have to put action to it. Meaning if we're upset about our boss at work, then the action would be, I'm going to get my resume back up and I'm going to start trying to look for a job because I don't mind listening to someone complain if they're taking action to fix it because I know it's short-lived. That also means that the thing that we're complaining about is less likely to hang around and make our life horrible. And so I really think that that's when it's too much. Is if we're just complaining and we're not doing anything. Like I've had that issue too in friendships and relationships where people just want to complain about something, and I'm like, you have 100% control over this. Like, stop, quit your bitching, and do something. And I know that it's not always that easy, but sometimes it is. Like, I can't tell you how many people in my life, even uh, patients of mine, have complained day in and day out about the person that they're dating, and I'm like. Mm, First of all, you just get to break up. Like you're dating. You're not even married. There's no legal paperwork. There's nothing. Just just fucking break up. Stop complaining. Take some action. Or continue to complain, but also take that action. Um, and I think so many of us, for some reason, myself included, have things happen to us, and we we like just lay there complaining about it, acting like we're helpless and hopeless when we're not. And so taking you know, stock of what action you can actually take for this and what you can do to make yourself feel better will make you feel better. And so I think the tips to stop complaining, but instead seeing the positive, I don't always, sometimes I think, and I don't know if you guys will agree with this, but sometimes I think there's just like, I know people have talked about this, call it toxic positivity. And I feel that way sometimes. Some situations are shit and you don't have to try to see the, the silver lining or just think more positively. It's so exhausting. Sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes the situation is fucked and we feel bad and it's shitty. And I, I validate that. That's okay. There are times when we are just looking for problems. We're looking for negative things. Like I'll get comments sometimes on a video where somebody will say like, well, you said she, and this can happen to, to all genders, Or whatever, and I'm like, okay. So you're just like, like every word you're like critiquing. Like, obviously, I didn't mean that to be offensive, and that's just a random example. I'm not. I don't even. I'm just pulling that completely out of my butt. I don't even know if I've ever heard that, but I'm just giving you an example that if you're, you're going to find what you're looking for. So if we're looking for problems, if we're looking for upset surprise, you'll find it. But if we're looking for solutions and we're looking for progress and and healthy relationships, we're going to find those too. And so I guess when it comes to like to stop complaining and seeing things more positively, it's really about like, are there things that we, I think the best advice for this would be to look at the things that we have control over, action that we can take and when we can most easily take that action. So like, let's say It's a relationship and we need to break up with the person. But we've been together for quite a while. We don't live together, so it's not that complicated. So I just need like a month or two to figure out how I'm going to break up with them and I'll break up with them. Okay, fair. Continue to complain, but prepare and take that action. If it's a job... Right now might be a tricky time because of the coronavirus, right? So shit's crazy. Um, maybe we can't quit now, but we can plan to try to quit in like six months. So you know what I'm going to do right now? I can still apply for other jobs. Nothing's stopping me from doing that. They can say no or they can say yes. And if they say yes, guess what? I can fucking quit that shitty job. But I got to get my resume up to date. I got to get my cover letter if that's something that you usually do when you're applying for jobs. I got to see who's hiring. I got to get the word out there. Talk to friends. Talk to people. Colleagues in the space. Um and so I really, I don't always think that we need to just see more positive. We need to look for more uh, potential for action so that we can make things better. But if it is just us looking for bad things, then we're going to have to challenge that self-talk. We're going to have to challenge where our brain goes and we're we'll going have to look for evidence to the contrary. So if we find ourselves always looking negatively out at our space and being like, oh my God, I don't have air conditioning. This house is so fucking hot. Why can't I make millions of dollars when other creators are making millions of dollars? This is my self-talk right now, you guys. Um, then I could afford a home in LA. Okay, so I'm complaining. It's really negative. I'm looking for more negative things versus looking for more positive things. And sure, there's action I can take in there, right? I've been saving money, been paying down my student loans, almost paid off, you guys. Whoop, whoop. Um, And I'm hoping to purchase a home soon. Not in Santa Monica because it's too expensive, but somewhere. I'm going to find it. Something I can afford, right? So there's things that I can do. However, in the meantime, because that's like a, a long term goal, in the meantime, I'm going to check myself. I'm going to check those negative thoughts. Like today when I was like, God, it's so hot. I hate this place. I hate living here. I was like, nope. I am fortunate to live in a place that has sunshine because I know if it's rainy and cloudy for too long, I start to feel down. I have like seasonal affective disorder. That shit's real. So I'm I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that I have a wonderful home. I have a wonderful husband. I have, you know, there's so many things that I can think about that I do have things that are positive positive." And you're going to hear a beep because I forgot the dishwasher was just finishing. So I apologize. Um, but, you know, there, there's ways that I can look for things to the contrary. I can talk to my other friends who live in East L.A. in a hotter area who don't have air conditioning. And then I feel better about my situation. You know, it's all relative. And so looking for more positive things, uh, challenging those negative thoughts that we have over and over, um, using bridge statements if we have to, if the negative stuff is all about ourselves, Um yeah I feel like I'm kind of rambling story of this podcast, <laughs> but I think that that's really what it is. Complaining has its place. Um, we have to get things off our chest, we have to vent, we have to feel heard and understood, but we can't not take action. we self take action to help ourselves, right? otherwise, what are we doing? And then if it is just negative thinking and there isn't any action that can be taken, the action is actually in your brain. It's kind of like when we're working against um Pure O OCD. If you guys don't know, I have a video about that, but pure O OCD is like the compulsions are in our head. Like it's thought compulsions. There are things that we think we have like, uh, uh, intrusive thoughts, intrusive images. We can be like, Oh my God, I'm going to kill myself or I'm going to kill somebody. Or what if I jumped off this bridge? We have all these weird thoughts that are like, they're usually violent or sexual in nature, just FYI. So anyway, the way to combat those is to take action, but the action is in our head. And the same could go for this. If you find that all the complaining is just like negative thought spirals that you get into, because we all been there, um, we have to stop, 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 stop. And we have to look for other things, think more positively. But I do not believe in this, like, everything's positive, work towards a better. We should have a good attitude, but that starts deeper within. It starts with um, us being grateful for things we have, us recognizing the things that have happened that day that we're thankful for, good things that happened for us, hopes we have for the future, and then throughout our day looking for evidence to support those hopes and dreams and things that we're, more things that we're grateful for, all of that. The more we try to look out and look for positive things and supportive things, the better we'll feel. I hope that kind of makes sense because I know it's kind of roundabout. You're like, but isn't that toxic positivity? No, toxic positivity is like you can never feel bad. You can never have a shit day. You can never have a relationship, be like, that person's toxic and I probably should break up with them, but I don't have the strength. But you just have to think positive. You have to feel good. Sometimes that's exhausting. It's completely okay to have shitty days, to be angry, to be upset, but we just can't live there, right? That's where like positive thinking is helpful we have to allow there's room for every feeling for every situation, but we just have to recognize when we're, we're like wallowing or when we're only complaining, not taking any action to better the situation or better ourselves when we have control over something. Um, yeah. Anyway, I hope that's helpful. It's something that we all struggle with. Right. Um, especially when it comes to like relationships, I know in my past, like I've stuck in relationships that weren't good. And I, they weren't healthy. And, and it was part of, it was like my own confidence in myself, like my belief that I deserved better. And it would take me a while to get there. I would get there, but it would take me a while. And it took me longer than I'd like to admit, you know, like one of the people that I dated before I met Sean, I dated for two years and I didn't even like him for like the last year. So there's that. And I have to like, why'd you do that? Katie, hmm. So don't think that I'm like 100 percent perfect, and I like don't complain because I would complain to my friends about him, and I'd be like, "Oh, he's such a wet blanket. I don't like this. I don't like that." La la, la. Um, and I wasn't taking any action when I had complete control. I could have been like, "Peace, buddy. See you never. Bye." Um. So yeah. Anyway, I just want you to know that if you're complaining and not taking action, I'm not perfect. Um, but I think that that's something that as I've gotten older. I've gotten more comfortable doing where I'm like, Hey, my time is valuable. Your time is valuable. That's not going to work out, you know, in any type of relationship. Um, yeah, complain, but take action. Okay. Question number four. I've rambled long enough on that one. (laughs) Oh, and I have 10 questions today. Just FYI. Um, question number four. Hey Katie, how do I shake the guilt? Of distancing or cutting contact from toxic parents. Love this question too. I am or was a scapegoat child who dealt with years of emotional and verbal abuse. If you didn't know, if you don't know how family dynamics work, I actually don't know if I've done a video about this, but the scapegoat is the child that like holds or shoulders all of the problems from the family. Usually it's the one child exhibiting some behaviors that they don't like, and the family focuses all their attention on this, like this child who's acting out or doing something bad. If you're just listening, I'm doing air quotes, doing something bad um, and acting out or both in air quotes. Um, Anyway, so they're, they're doing that. um, And so that's a lot of weight on the child. Hence why this person said they dealt with years of emotional and verbal abuse, because it usually comes along with all of that weight when it's not all ours to bear. We're just the, the easy point the finger. It's their problem, not our problem. It's their problem. Okay. Just, just so we're clear. More recently, I've recognized this and have begun taking steps for my own well-being. I worry because I want to start a family with my partner. However, I feel immense guilt about the idea of not allowing my mother and father into my future child's life or mine. This worry has made me question my own experience. Is this normal? Like, for example, were they really that awful, abusive, or neglectful? Am I making a mistake or being cruel? Oh my God, the self-doubt. Yes. So, okay. There's a lot to unpack here. And shaking the guilt of cutting contact really just comes with time and processing it in therapy. That's the truth. I wish there was a better way to, to fix this, cut this, make this easier, but there's really not. Okay. And the thing about it is that when whenever we go, like even with, I was just writing about the ACEs, right? I was telling you guys the adverse childhood experiences and everything I read, I, I go down rabbit holes, you guys. I'll read a research paper and then I'll get like into a Reddit thread and read people's thoughts. Then I get on into our comments of things. Then I'm listen, you know, so I go down, it's deep. I listen to podcasts about it. It's crazy. Over and over and over again, the people who had a high level of ACEs, maybe three, four or more would always say that they would try to minimize it. Like even answering that questionnaire, the questionnaire is things like, you know, before your 18th birthday, did anyone in your family, um, you know, were you often or most often slapped, hit, punched, thrown, you know, all sorts of stuff. It goes from um, emotional abuse, physical abuse, neglect, uh, uh, all things about like your your family dynamics, like was you did you watch your mom or stepmom be abused in any way? There's a lot of stuff. Anybody incarcerated, substance abuse, mental illness in your family, all that stuff. So as people answer these questions, even though you know in your gut, you're like, ooh, that was bad. Like you know in your gut that you dealt with years of emotional and verbal abuse. You said that right up front. And I'm sure if I asked you to write about those situations and those scenarios, you could. And you could tell me all the horrible things they've said and done and how badly that made you feel about yourself and your situation and how hard it was for you to climb out of that hole, right? However, because they've been doing that, and I don't even mean to grin because it's not funny it's and, and it's not a nice thing. It's just like, because they've been doing that stuff to us for so long, it's hard for us to believe in ourselves, right? We're in that hole. They've put us in that hole. They've told us how shitty and terrible and what a bad person we are. So, that's that false belief we've held deep inside, thinking that we're not worthy, that we're not good enough, that we're bad. Something's wrong with us. That The shame that comes along with abuse is born out of that. Something's wrong with me, which is not true. I'm, I'm writing about that next in the book, so I've been reading about shame. Um, however, then because we feel so shittily about ourselves, then we feel bad for cutting them off, even though they're, they're trash, they're garbage, they're bad people. And I know that that's hard to believe, and especially when it comes to family, so many people in my life, uh, personal life and in professional life, have, have told me bad things about family members, but they're like, but you know, you can't choose your family, so it's got to move on. And I'm like, no, every relationship has to be, not earned, but it has to be maintained. Okay, family means they don't have to like earn entrance because they're already in our lives, right? It's not like we get a chance to get to know them um, over time and then decide if we want them in our life. They're already there. So, but it has to be maintained. There has to be some kind of mutual respect. There has to be love, compassion, understanding, nurture. Um, when we're talking about traumas and abuse, the number one antidote to the ACEs and the ACE score and how we can heal our brain is through nurture. Hence like re remothering, reparenting ourselves. Um, but anyways, I feel like I'm getting really into this and I apologize, but I think that it's, um, that it's so common that we, we feel like family doesn't need to maintain the relationship. It's just a given. And that my friends is not true. We owe our family, nothing, nothing, I want you to hear that. We owe them nothing. We don't owe our parents something just because they like decided to have us and then wiped our ass and fed us. We don't owe them for that. They did that because they decided they wanted to be a parent. And what comes along with being a parent? Taking care of a baby. That's what happens. Trust me. I know this. I'm watching all my friends do it right now and I'm just tapping out. I don't want to do that. I'm not doing it. Right? We have choices. My choice is not to. Your parents chose to. So they did that good for them. They were minimal parents. They they kept you alive, cool. But then the emotional and verbal abuse means that you don't have to keep them in your life now because they're not maintaining that relationship. And I know I know the minimization because of the like confident the lack of self-confidence that we have because they put us down and made us think that something's wrong with us. I I would really work on that in therapy. I'd work on those false falsely held beliefs about yourself because because they're just that. They're falsely held. They're not true. There's no grain of truth to them. Everything that you've gone through in life, they've tried to turn into a negative instead of looking for the positive. And that's had a horrible effect on you, and you've been working on it, right? And so, he you said you've begun taking steps for your own well-being. Awesome. And you know what? If your parents want to make steps to apologize, to admit their wrongdoing— and to change their behavior, by all means, you could be open to that. However, not allowing them in your child's life or yours is, a, is something that you have the complete 100% support of me, and I'm sure our whole community, to do if you need to. I don't want to make a choice for you. you can, it's, it's your life. You get to choose who's in it. But just remember that. And they were really awful, abuseful, and neglectful. I know you question yourself, but it comes out of that like something's wrong with me. You've taken the blame for so long, it's really hard for you to look outwards and be like, hey, I'm responsible for my side of the road. Like, okay, maybe I did act out in this way, but they are the parents and they're responsible for that side of the road. And I would encourage you to, maybe it would help to draw that out, to journal it out. What did they do and what did I do that apparently warranted this? maybe it wasn't much. Then consider if one of your children or a friend of yours did that thing that you apparently did that caused them to react in such a way. How would you react? How would you respond to that? Chances are it's much more reasonable. You wouldn't lash out. You wouldn't shout nasty things. You wouldn't put someone down. You'd seek to understand. Like I remember when I was a kid, I snuck into the neighboring town's, um, It was one of their like formal dances. My boyfriend went to the other school at the time. So I snuck in because you couldn't go if you didn't go to that school. Okay. It wasn't prom. It was like, I don't even know what it was like Sadie Hawkins dance or something. Anyway, so I snuck in and of course I live in a small town next to another small town. They all knew me. I played soccer against them and softball with their other friends and they all knew me. And the parents who were chaperoning were like, Katie, why are you here? You're not supposed to be here. You're from the other town. And, they called my mom because they know my mom. (laughs) It's funny thinking back. I'm sorry, mom. Um, And I think I was like, I don't know, 14, 15 at the time. So anyway, so my mom um, comes to get me and she would have had every right to just shout me down to say horrible things. But you know what she said? I'm disappointed in you. And I'm embarrassed that I got a call from your friend, Sarah's mom. And I wish you hadn't put me in this position. Please don't do this again. And I was devastated. Right? My mom was disappointed. That was almost worse than her just shouting. I almost wish she'd shouted. Right? But I'm just giving you that example to to better understand a relationship between a parent and a child, and how you compare it without emotional or verbal abuse. I felt bad. I never did shit like that ever again. Not that I was even a bad kid. And I think that you know, I my mom just knew that, and also knew that was her problem. She was embarrassed. She was embarrassed that I did that to her. I I let her down. She was disappointed in my behavior. That all makes sense. And I like walked the straight and narrow after that, you guys. That was like, I know that's such a silly thing, but that was one of the worst things my mom caught me doing because I didn't like drink or smoke in high school. I think I drank like once and threw up and was like, never going to do this again. Bad choice. Um, So there are ways that parents can do better and yours did not. And that's why you're struggling with the guilt is because of that lack of self-confidence and that hole that they put you in. And so if you work with a CBT-based therapist or DBT or just even talk therapy, um, or if you can even draw out like which side of the road is yours and which is theirs, what are you responsible for? What are they responsible for? Breaking that up, breaking up the things that we did with the, res- the response and the reaction we got will really help you see things more clearly, especially since you plan on you know starting a family of your own having your own children, put yourself in that position. If I had a child, how would I react to this? How would I respond? How would I parent? How would I discipline them when they've done something that was embarrassing or hurtful or uh, disrespectful of me? How would I manage that? Think about it. Sometimes it helps for us to think about a a different relationship, a different scenario than the one that we're in. We can see it more clearly. So do that because that will help you get over that guilt. Because you'll you'll see clear as day that they deserve to be cut out. They deserve to not have a place in your life. Why should they? I always say that like, um, you, uh, what's I'm trying to think of there's a phrase. It's like, it's a privilege, not a right. And I like to think of relationships with people are privileges. They're not rights. I don't have a right to have a relationship with everyone. If I don't put in the work, if I don't maintain it, if I'm not thoughtful and caring and clearly communicate with them, I don't deserve it. It's not just a privilege. And parents often think that the relationship with their children is, is a right. And it's a privilege. And so with your parents, it's a privilege for them to be able to even talk to you again, or to meet your partner, child, whoever you want, whoever's in your life, even know what you're up to. That's a privilege, not a right. And so anyway, I don't know if that was clear. Might've swip swapped the words a few times, but you get what my point is. Um, and it's hard, but keep thinking about it. Keep talking about it. Keep, uh, hopefully you're in therapy about it, especially because of the abuse, um, getting a chance to process that is really important. Um, yeah, but it does get better. Okay. And you're not being cruel. They were the cruel ones. Remember? Okay. Question number five. Hey, Katie, you are, this is a fun one. So I put it in for just a, a nice break. You're calling yourself a fashionista. So I was wondering, how do, um, what does your favorite outfit look like? Uh, how does your favorite outlet, outfit look that you own right now? Oh, my favorite outfit. And what and do I have any rules when it comes to a good outfit? Greetings from Switzerland. Thanks for the fun question. Um, tr- the rules that I have about fashion is actually that there are no rules. I think you can wear white after Labor Day. You can wear brown and black together. You can wear uh, mixed patterns. I actually enjoy mixing patterns. Um, I think... The more fun you have with an outfit and the, the more you feel it represents you, the more confident you are. And so I think that's all good stuff. I would encourage you know all of us to have a little bit more fun, especially because we're at home. Have a little bit more fun with your outfits. Be a little crazy. Play dress up. I think that's super fun. I don't think that's something that only children get to do. Um, and my favorite out, outfit right now, um, my new dress. I got this new dress. It's a Natalie... Uh, what is it called? Is it Natalie Martin? I, I t- um, tagged it in my Instagram. I think her name is Natalie Martin. Um, but I might be remembering it wrong. Um, but it's like a flowy, uh, like a nice, uh, almost like a, I don't want to call it a house dress cause that makes it sound like really frumpy, but it's just comfortable. It's beautifully made. Um, the colors are fun and cool. And it was a treat that I gave to myself every time I write a chapter. Sorry, I have a hair that's really tickling me. Um, Every time I write a chapter of the book, I allow myself uh, a treat, like a little gift of some sort. And that was for writing chapters one through three. I got myself that because um, I wanted. It's a little more expensive than normally. I'd spend like fifty bucks on a treat, but I was like, I'm saving it up and um, waiting for a sale. You know me. Anyway, um, yeah, I think that's my favorite outfit. I don't. I don't know if I have another one. I love dresses. I love dresses in general. I really don't like jeans. I just don't find them comfortable. So I prefer dresses or loose clothes, like loose pants. I just, I don't know. The days of skinny jeans are, I think, done for me. I wore them for a long time because they were cool and I just hate them. So I don't think I'm gonna do that anymore. Because why? Why? Right? Okay. Question number six. Hi, Katie. I self-harmed for a long time and stopped a couple of years ago because I couldn't hide anymore. Is it normal to still want to do it and not And to not see it as something bad. The only reason that I don't is because I don't want to see the disappointment and helplessness of the people close to me. This is very normal. Um, This is why I get really frustrated when people are like, oh, people self harm just for attention. It's just like they just want us to notice. And I'm like, please educate yourself and shut up also. Um, Because I can't tell you how many of my patients, no one in their life even knows they self injure. And why do we do it on places no one will see and wear long sleeves even though it's like a million degrees outside? Anyway. I could that's me on a soapbox but I think it is definitely normal to still want to do it and to not see it as something bad but to be not doing it as a way to protect other people I would be very curious if I was your therapist what else you're doing because I've never had a patient just stop self-injuring not process it till it didn't have the urges anymore without using something else like eating or exercise or I'm trying to think of something else uh, overspending, uh, drugs or alcohol. Um, hmm. yeah, binge eating usually is a common one, but anyway, whatever, I'd be very interested. So I, that's one of my questions I have for you. Um, but then I think that uh, even though you're only not doing it because you don't want to, to disappoint those around you, I think this is a good opportunity to start like processing and thinking about, maybe just considering why the self-injury urges existed in the first place. I know that it can be really hard to think about that, but but it existed for a reason. And whatever that reason is, we still need therapy and love and support around it. So we need to find that for you. And I have that whole, um, I have a ton of videos about self-injury, by the way, but I also have that video, The 25 Coping Skills. You can look that up on YouTube. It'll offer some... um, you know, I talk about, uh, impulse logs and other coping skills that are of the process kind. So if you don't know that video, half of them are coping skills for processing emotions and situations and things. And the other half are for distracting because there's two types. And I think that ideally everyone uses a little bit of both of those as they're trying to like navigate self, like self-injury urges or eating disorder urges or any of those things. Um, anyways, long story short, try to figure out why it existed. It is very normal to still want to do it and not see it as something bad. Most of my patients who self injure don't see it as something bad. They think something's wrong with them. Why do I have to do this? Something I'm weird. Something's wrong. No, nothing's wrong with you. Something happened. Something's going on. So we have something we don't know how to process or deal with unless we use self-injury. So what is that thing? can we work on that thing? Can we heal from that thing? Can we process that thing so that we don't need to do that anymore? Um, And the answer is yes, we can. Yes, 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 across the board. Um, But finding a therapist who understands this and who can process it with you, help you figure it out, ask the questions to kind of drill down to the root of the root, why our self-injury exists, um, that will really help you heal from it. Um, But yeah, just not wanting to do it because you don't want to see the disappointment in the people close to you, that doesn't, it doesn't heal the reason that's just a a deterrent um yeah and i'd also be i'm just curious what else you're doing because i'm sure you're doing something else um yeah okay so anyway i like that question and hopefully that's helpful question number seven Hi, Katie. Do you think it's hypocritical to be studying to become a mental health professional while having a mental illness? Sometimes I feel like such a hypocrite at school and at my internship because of my own struggles. These thoughts are making it really hard to write my thesis, etc. What are your thoughts on this? Okay. I've been asked this year after year after year, and maybe I should do another video. I think I'm going to start, you guys because it's been so long, I'm going to start giving like a refresh to some some videos such as this that I know people ask and they have questions about. And uh, even though I've done a video about it a long time ago, it's really old and it can feel like not relatable anymore to people. Um, so when it comes to this, I... I do not think it's hypocritical, just to answer your question, I do not think it's hypocritical to be studying to become a prof- mental health professional while you have a mental illness. I do think that we need to be getting our own help. I do not believe it is okay for us to go through schooling or to be a mental health professional if we're not taking care of ourselves first. I've talked about this uh, like so much ad nauseum about like how um, all therapists should have to be in therapy. All mental health professionals should have to have been on the other side of things from psychiatrist to counselor, to life coach, everyone else should have their own psychiatrist, you know, therapist, life coach. You should have, you should know what it's like to show up, fill out the paperwork, sit on the other side, spill your guts, have them help you. That is very important. And so you have a leg up on that because I'd hope that you're already getting help. Um, And as long as you're keeping your shit in check, because we've all got our own shit, right? Right. Um, I think a lot of mental health professionals have mental illnesses. They just never seen anybody and got diagnosed. Boom. Take it, guys. Take it. Not you. There's people who don't believe in it, and I just get so frustrated. So, I don't think it's hypocritical. I think it makes you a better therapist. I think it makes you a better mental health professional. I think that um, being able to understand, it gives us more empathy. Like, the fact that I've been in therapy since I was a teen, I think makes me a better person and a better therapist. It helps me understand where my patients are coming from when I'm struggling in therapy or like, let's say for instance, recently, I don't um, feel like my therapist does what I need anymore. And it's not like her versus me, like, oh, she's bad. It's just not, I need, I need someone who's a little more hard ass on me now. I need someone to be like, calling me out. And she calls me out. I just need a little more push. Okay. It's probably because I'm more resistant. I don't know. Maybe I'm stuck in my ways. Nobody knows, but I know that I need a little bit more of that push and so I need to find someone else and that has helped me better understand that perspective when a lot of you are like, I love my therapist, I've seen her for years because that's how I've been, I've seen her for years. It just doesn't seem to work anymore and I was like, you can talk about it, it's okay and now that I'm doing it myself, I'm like, it is kind of hard, it gives me another perspective, it makes me better, it makes me a better therapist and better, um, a better YouTuber, right? And so I guess that in all, all in all, those are my thoughts about it. I think that it can be great. I don't think it's hypocritical, but that is all with the caveat that we always are responsible for taking care of our own shit so that we don't have transference or counter transference in sessions and not be able to manage it. Because if, let's say, uh, your mental illness is eating disorder based and you've never really gotten that much help for it, and then you have a patient come in who has an eating disorder, and we all know eating disorders like to be really competitive for some unknown reason. And then we find ourselves being frustrated with this patient, angry, lashing out, you know, yelling at them, being not necessarily yelling, but like maybe not giving the best advice, maybe bringing our own shit in and, and being like, Oh, I think it might be because your dad was doing this. And the person's like, no, that's not right. So it's really, really, really important that we keep our own shit under control by seeing our own therapist. And other than that, I have no problem. It's you're not a hypocrite. I think um, it help, helps give us more understanding, more empathy, which makes you overall makes you a better mental health professional. I believe. And if more mental health professionals got their own help, there'd be less shitty care out there. Like less therapists would be falling asleep in session, forgetting your name, or getting frustrated, or uh, making sexual advances, doing all the things that are illegal, inappropriate, and unethical. Um, yeah. So. Okay, are we ready? Question number eight. Hi, Katie. Is it okay to numb my feelings as long as I can still function properly? Oh, it is okay, right? No, that's not okay. I do not have to pay attention to any of my problems and emotions, right? I'm allowed to laugh and smile while talking about painful things to show people I'm okay, right? (laughs) I can keep everything to myself, right? I'm reading exactly as I typed it, you guys. Once I'm vulnerable, people will hate me and deem me as annoying, right? Right? I'm 100 correct about all this, right? Wrong. A big capital W R O N G. Wrong. All wrong. Um, numbing our feelings and ignoring our emotions and not paying attention to any of that just creates like a like a teapot where the the heat is on. It's real low, but the heat is building. I had to fight the urge, you guys, just then to be like, the heat is on. The heat is on. Oh, okay, but anyways, back to the question. <laughs> but the heat is on really low, and that teapot is going to boil, and the steam is going to need to be released, meaning all of these emotions and feelings and painful things we're just stuffing deep are going to erupt in one way or another. And I'll just give you some examples of ways that it can erupt. I've had patients who have digestive issues like crazy because of this. Uh, I've had patients who have eating disorders, self-injury, depression, anxiety, OCD, um, suicidal thoughts, um, tons of other things, you guys, uh, panic attacks, dissociation, it depends on how painful it could be, PTSD, the, the, the ways this could erupt and explode and is already maybe potentially making your life more difficult are endless. So, no, it's not okay to numb your feelings as long as you can still function. We all do that. I call that white knuckling. That's like, I've talked about like high function depression or high functioning, uh, you know, I don't know if I've done anxiety, but I could do one of those. Um, but it's like, we're just barely hanging on. Is that what you want out of life? Just barely hanging on? Just white knuckling it? Like ugh, all the muscles tense, just barely just getting through. I don't think that that's what any of us want. Imagine this. Imagine a life where, You can have the feelings that you have. You can feel down and out. You can have a shitty day. You can complain to people a little bit. You can vent to friends. And then, you know, you can take some action. You can uh, journal about it. You can see a therapist. You can get all that stuff out and still be happy, healthy, have good friends, have family. People want to be around you because you're honest, you're authentic, and you feel good. Right now, we're just barely hanging in there, just white knuckling, just like, so tense, swallowing it down it just i 'm even uncomfortable just thinking about it. Being vulnerable actually makes you courageous it doesn 't make you annoying um, people won 't hate you. vulnerability allows allows for true connection. If we're just pretending that everything's okay and smiling through our problems, stuffing everything down, nobody really knows us. We might not even really know ourselves. And so I'd encourage you to step into that discomfort, to that vulnerability and get to know yourself so that others can get to know you too. I believe that we can't really live like a, a true life until we allow for those things. Um, I know it's hard. No one says it's easy, there are a lot of times in life when I have to choose to be vulnerable instead of put walls up and be defensive. Um, the easiest way I practice is with Sean and my mom. Those are safe relationships for me, right? I can uh, tell them I'm, I was afraid of letting you down. That's why I did that. Or I didn't. I exploded because I really felt hurt, and here's why. Those are ways that we can let people in. We can show a little vulnerability through clear communication and courage to let them get to know us better, and in turn we get to know ourselves better. Um it's really difficult, but it, it can happen. It's just practice. It's a new muscle. You've worked out this uh, stuff it down, numb out muscle for years, so that muscle is really strong. So it's going to want to pull us back. But we have to keep working that little baby muscle and pulling it back as we you know allow ourselves to feel what we feel. I would uh, start with trying to find a therapist. Maybe doing it online because most of us are at home, and it's also maybe a little bit easier. Maybe you take the therapy session in your car or when you go for walks, sit down somewhere. Um, You could use feelings charts to start identifying your feelings. Those are all wonderful, wonderful places to start. Um, But no, unfortunately, you are not 100% correct about all of that. You are 100% wrong. But that leaves so much room for growth and understanding. And I promise you, it does get better. It gets easier. We just got to give it a try. Um, Oh, my nose. Itch, itch. Okay. Question number nine and some water. I'm sweating, but it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. I told Sean, I was like, I'm just going to sweat here. This is going to be terrible. But I have to be honest, not so bad. See, looking for evidence to disprove a negative belief I had before. It takes practice, people, but we can get there. Okay, question nine. Hi, Katie. I used to struggle really badly with anxiety and would be terrified to leave the house. Um, If you guys don't know, a lot of that's called, I don't know if this is this person's experience, but sometimes if we can't leave the house, we call it like agoraphobia. Um, I saw a therapist a few years ago and it really helped, but I occasionally still struggle. Because of lockdown, I've been unable to leave the house and put myself in situations that forced me to work through it. Because of this, I'm so scared that my anxiety will get bad again once lockdown is lifted. I'm trying to go for walks every day, but that's not really the trigger. My anxiety has been on and off for five years, and it's something I really want to get rid of. Do you have any advice for dealing with this? It is hard. Um, unfortunately, because lockdown is still happening we don't really necessarily get to practice whatever your triggers are. Um, For my patients with anxiety, especially my social anxiety patients, they're like, things are easy. This is wonderful. Some of them are like, I don't even need any sessions right now. Um, And without the triggers, it's really hard for us to do the exposure that's needed to manage the anxiety. But now could be a great time to build up resources for when we go back out and to plan, like scheduling some Uh, outings and adventures and situations that we know would trigger us. I'm not sure what your trigger is because she didn't really say, but he or she actually don't know um, who this was. But um, going for walks every day isn't really a trigger. So is there something we could do like – Uh, that would potentially be a little bit closer to it without risking, you know, infection and being close to other people. Let's think about that. Maybe there are things that we can do, Um, but building up our resources and resources, if you don't know, are things that we use to calm our system back down. They can be things like um, breathing exercises. Uh, Some people push on like pressure points. That's uh, and even there's this part between your thumb and forefinger that I guess pinching there is supposed to calm your nervous system down. There's some stretches you can do. I've been following a new um, acupuncturist and it's very fascinating. Um, but anyway, there's things that we can do like that. We can contact people who are supportive and loving. We can go to happy places in our head. We can um, count down from 10 and do breathing. We can uh, take a break. We can step into you know a safe space, sit down, call a friend, text a friend. I'm trying to think of others, you guys. Sorry, calming our system down. Oh, stretching, releasing the muscles in our neck, jaw, shoulders. Um, mantras we say there's so many things we can do but building up those resources and those coping skills those tools to help us feel better uh, when we are anxious that's something you can do right now Um, and then finding some ways and planning some things that maybe we can do that would be a trigger and maybe there's even ways you can do it from a distance like my socially anxious people don't even want to be on zoom calls with more than like one or two people at a time so i'm like you know what i want you to do i want you to plan one with like six people and they're like no But I'm like, that's your homework. You have two weeks. Let's give it a go because you got to challenge them. Um, so things like that, like consider what it is for you, consider what it would mean. If there are ways that we can do it from a distance, maybe we plan that in. maybe we do that. Um, and I'm glad you're going for walks. Um, maybe when you go for your walks, you smile at a stranger. I don't know if that would trigger or you say hi or something. Um, just depends on you, but based on what your triggers are, see if there's ways that we can do it socially distanced. Um, Okay. Final question. And and again, working on those resources. Okay. Question number 10. Hi, Katie. My little brother is going to college soon. He's been really down on himself the last few years and struggling to eat enough. He's, um, already really thin and he looks like he's lost weight the last time I saw him. My family and parents are very anti-mental health treatment and is, it was unsafe for me to seek treatment for myself in college or even now as an adult living in my own place. What can I do to support him when he moves away? First of all, I understand the unsafety when you're in college because parents, sometimes if they're paying for our school, can have access to our records. But now that you're an adult and you live on your own, see somebody, please, please reach out. Online stuff is available. You're, no one's ever going to know how would they know? You're going to tell them? I wouldn't tell them. I'd have some healthy boundaries around that because if they don't think it's okay and they are like anti that, uh, even more reason to not bring it up, right? There's no reason for them to know. We have complete confidentiality. Once you're 18, I legally, as a therapist, cannot tell your parents anything about your treatment. Anything. Rightfully so. It's none of their fucking business. So I would encourage you to get help. And I would encourage you to talk to your little brother about your own experience, about how you felt and how you encourage him to get help too. And it would help if you've already started, be like, Hey, I use a talk space, better Helper. I found a therapist that does phone sessions through my insurance or whatever it is. I think that that could really, really, really help. Um, and, and, checking in on him that's helpful and beneficial you can share my channel like I have a lot of eating disorder stuff you don't have to share like exactly that but you can be like hey she does a lot of mental health stuff she specializes in eating disorders and self-injury it says that all over everything so you could totally you know say that to him let him know um so yes, so there's that. I think the best way is just to try to communicate, check in. We can't make someone get better. And I want to just mention this because it's so vitally important that we remember that. We cannot make someone do the work, find a therapist, get better, feel better. We, we're not responsible for that. We can't do that, okay? And I know that it sucks and I know that it's hard, but the best thing we can do is check in, offer to support in any way. We can share our own story, our own feelings, our own worries, the ways that it, it helped for us, things that we hope for them that's it. Then they have to be able to do the thing. They have to take the action that's best for them. And I know it's hard. It's really hard to watch people we love struggle, but they have you. They know you're there. You've already made yourself available and told them that you're there, that you can support. And then we just check in and hang out. Maybe it just means that we come over and, you know, do you want to watch a movie and I'll pick up some food? Is there something you want me to get? I get that. We come over, we sit, we eat together. You know, we support healthy behavior. We connect with them. Um, That's really all that we can do. Um, But yeah, please get some help. I know parents are like anti-mental health treatment and all that stuff, but you're an adult. They can't stop you now. And just because they want to live in upset and discontent and not knowing how to manage their emotions or what, whatever, I have no idea, um, doesn't mean that you have to. Just because our parents decide to be uh, ignorant doesn't mean we have to. So, um, yeah, hopefully that helps. I think I speak for everybody when it's like often when we need support, it's really just the checking in. It's just the being there. It's the, the supporting of those decisions. It's sharing in our own story. Um, yeah, it can make us all feel better. And it'll make you feel good to connect. It'll make them feel good to know that you're there. It's all. It's all good. And that's all. That's my final question. Um, I hope you all have a wonderful week. Uh, I hope you're not in LA and dying of a heat stroke like I am. Um, And if you are, try to look for some positive stuff. It's been a really, really trying, sad, guilt-ridden month, maybe multiple months. I don't know. It's been hard with the pandemic and then the Black Lives Matter. We had riots in our city. they like burned places that I love. And that was sad for me to watch and it deterred from the real message, which made me sad again. It was like all this um, lay all these layers. And so I just want to give you all permission to feel how you need to feel right now to allow yourself to be where you need to be. Um, Take breaks from media and social media as you need. I've been doing that. It's been really helpful um, because it can just be overwhelming and you know, it's like just burning us out. So, you know, listen to yourself, make time for self-care. There's always time for it. So just make the time. Um, thanks for listening. I love you all. Have a wonderful week and I will talk to you soon. Bye. You can ask her about your therapist or vent about your work. You can ask her about your self-esteem or why your feelings hurt. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know Ask Katie